1985, I graduate college. I'm a business major with a concentration in economics. Um, basically, I was born to either be a salesman, a coach, uh, an ESPN anchor, something like that. Uh, but because I already had a wife and a child who wanted to eat and live indoors, I had to get a real job. So kind of hit the job market and uh, by God's grace, went to work for the Boeing company, which I'll ever be grateful for. It gave me a great salary. I was able to raise my kids in their early years, do ministry on the side. Uh, the problem is on my first day, and think about this, I wasn't hired into the business side of Boeing. I was hired into the engineering side, trying to figure that one out. And the first day I get there, uh, my boss puts a bunch of blueprints on my desk. Now, I had never seen a blueprint in my life, let alone do I even know how to read this thing. I'm not even sure I like people that make blueprints, okay? Uh, I had never seen an engineer major in my whole time in college. They went to a different building. They lived in different frat houses or whatever. Uh, I didn't, really didn't associate with guys or girls like that. Here I am, and now I'm in this engineering field where I'm reading blueprints. Well, 12 and a half years go by, and I can actually read a blueprint. That's really cool, right? God wanted me to do something different, and that was okay. Uh, here's what I learned about blueprints. If you're going to build anything of significant size and worth, you need a blueprint. You need something builders can look at and say, okay, we can build this. And then if you're going to build hundreds of these things exactly the same way, like helicopters, well, then you really need it. So the question is, as important as the church is to God, did he give us a blueprint? Now, you all came here this morning, right? We just sang songs, we're preaching, we'll sing some more songs, you might get a cup of coffee, fellowship, we do church on the lawn, we have small groups. Uh, last night we had youth ministry, we do outreach, all these things we do. Is there somewhere in scripture we could say, well, God gave us a blueprint and we've been doing this for 2,000 years? It's one of the questions we're going to answer this morning. The church for 2,000 years has been flawed, imperfect, wrinkled, blemished, hypocritical, persecuted. And man, by God's grace, it's still here. Is that miraculous? The Roman Empire, which it was birthed under, a totalitarian regime that wanted to extinguish it, is gone. Not only is it gone, great scholars will argue that post-300 A.D. under Constantine, the Roman Empire actually survived longer because of the church and its influence. When we go to Israel, our first stop is, you know, the cat gets out of the bag really early. We go to an area called Caesarea by the Sea. And we sit in this beautiful amphitheater that still holds about 15,000 people today, looks out at the Mediterranean Sea. We look at Herod's aqueduct. It's, it's just an amazing day. People's jaws drop. And I say, guys, if you ever doubt God, think about this. The church was birthed under Roman persecution, Jewish persecution, and here we are, Gentiles, Christians, looking at Roman ruins with Jewish tour guides. You think God has a sense of humor? You think he knows what he's doing? Will IBM be here in 2,000 years? Will Apple? Will the NFL? I doubt it. But what is the church? You know, in 2016, if you did a man-on-the-street interview, you all know what that is? So you get a microphone and a video, and you go on the street and you ask people questions, man on the street, right? Just want to see if you guys are still here. <laughs> and you said, what is the church? Can you imagine the answers you would get? First and foremost, somebody would say it's a building, right? Gosh, go to any downtown, just media, Philadelphia, anywhere. There's 
20 churches with steeples, bells ringing, right? So uh, the Germans did us in on that one, right? They give us the etymology of church being a building. I don't want to go into that right now. Uh, some people would say, well, it's where I vote. It's where I give blood. Other people say it's where I went as a kid or where we get a religious instruction. Uh, all kinds of answers. Some people would say it's boring, it's irrelevant, all these different things. Jesus used the word church twice in four Gospels. The first time is in Matthew 18, where he talked about conflict resolution among God's people. He said, if you have something against your brother, go to your brother, resolve it. No one will know. It's a win-win. If your brother doesn't listen, bring somebody else. If he still doesn't listen, then go to the leaders or the elders of the church. Now, the church wasn't a new word. It was ekklesia in the Greek. It was the called out ones or the separated ones. Uh, it was used in local politics, right? So in Chad's Ford, the people who run the business of Chad's Ford, uh, they would have been the ecclesia. So that's the word they grasped for, for church. We, the called out ones. We were, we were called out by God. That's the church. The most important time Jesus used it the second time is when he took his men, the 12 disciples, on a two-day journey to the north of Israel to an area called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea named after Caesar, Philippi named after Herod's son, Philip. Uh, it was an area that was pagan to the core. In fact, look up on the screen here. Uh, we visit this site when we go to Israel. It's still there. Uh, this is an artist reconstruction. You can see these temples to Athena Nike, to Pan, uh, to different gods. We go there now. You can still see the grottos, but obviously these temples are in ruins. They're not there. The reason why this was a center of worship, it was the headwaters of the Jordan River. They believed the god Pan lived there in a cave uh, where the waters were birthed. The Jews called this the gates of hell. Okay, They thought this is where Satan lived. And Jesus takes his guys there, and in the midst of these worldviews that are pagan, he says, now, guys, we've been doing this for two and a half years. Who do men say that I am? What's the word on the street? Now, you never tell the leader the whole truth, so they told him a partial truth. They said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet who's to come, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, they didn't tell him about the other crew who said that he was born illegitimate, that he had demons, right? Uh, Jesus said, okay, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus said, geez, Peter, I, I want to give you a gold star so bad but that didn't come from you. That came from my father in heaven. He downloaded that into you. And upon this rock, in the imagery there, uh, you see this giant rock at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Peter didn't say, yes, I, <laughs> I'm the Pope. I'm going to go to Rome and build the Vatican. We'll collect art from around the world. Yes, I'm the top of the class. He's going to build his church on me. The reason we know Peter didn't think that way is because Peter wrote a book. It's called 1 Peter. And in chapter 5, he said, The leaders or the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a, get this, fellow elder. I'm just a fellow elder. I'm a colleague. I'm not the Pope. A fellow sufferer of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. 
He says to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who are entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Now get this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. Peter said, I was in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said upon the revelation that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, he would build this thing called the church and the gates of hell, the worst places in the world would not prevail against it and he's going to build it. He said it was his church and he's the chief shepherd. We're just all under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. He's building his church. Peter got it that day. Now I love first Peter here because the word elders used twice. One is presbyteros, where we get Presbyterian form of government. One is episkopos, where we get episcopal form of government. And shepherd is appointment. So we have three church leaders interchangeably using different words, all the same office. And we fought about government and churches for years. It's, it's all one and the same. But Peter got it that day. Now, where do we see Jesus after the resurrection? After he meets his gods? We see him in Revelation chapter 1 and 2. Everybody skips that. They go to the end of the book. Armageddon, etc., etc. Second coming. But in chapter 1, John sees the revelation. He sees Jesus in all his glory. And where is he? In the midst of the church. Now, there's two ideas for church. Hang with me on this one. There's the big C church. The day you were born again, baptized, you were immersed into the big C church, the family of God, universal, every tribe, every kingdom, every tongue. But then there is the small C church, what we're doing right now, geographical, family-oriented, in one domain. That's where Jesus was, by the way, in the book of Revelation, geographical leadership-oriented, there was order and function. Um, the small C church, we're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, Hebrew says, as is the manner of some. Recent statistics tell us 48% of evangelicals, you and me, uh, attend church once a month. We're starting to see the forsaking of fellowship, one of another. It says we should gather together more and more, small C church, as we see the day coming. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking among literal churches. There's seven. They were all literal in Asia Minor. They were local, also representative of the church universal. If you ever want to find Jesus, he's in the church. He loves the church. He birthed the church. He said the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Now here's what's fascinating. He gave the church its mission. When he met his guys for the last time, he said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you at the end of the age. Jesus gave the church a mission, not a method. We're all arguing about method. He never gave us method. There's no blueprint. Jesus never said, here's what you're going to do. Get a guy who looks really cool, kind of hipster-looking guy with a hat, nice beard. Give him a guitar. Put somebody in children's ministry. Get a hip youth leader. Do women's and men's retreats. He didn't say any of that. There's no blueprint. What he did say is this movement, this revolution, would be an unstoppable force that would exist until I return again, fueled by the power of the Spirit, 
and it will go in all the world. There is nothing would stop it. The gates of hell, pagan religion, polytheism, it would reach the world, and you're going to baptize them. You know what that means? For someone to get baptized, it means they need to repent, change their mind, change their worldview. Think about all you in this room. Think about who you are or were and who you are now. It's crazy. It's crazy what God has done. Life transformation would happen from the church, who Jesus gave a mission, not a method. He said, wait in Jerusalem. And 120 waited. And one day they were in an upper room. And the scripture tells us in Acts chapter 2 that a mighty rushing wind came through. The same wind in Genesis 1 where the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The breath of God came in and the church was established. God breathed life into it. Tongues of fire, the sign of the presence of God. Just like Moses on Mount Sinai when they saw earthquakes and lightning and fire. God's presence was there. They were filled with the spirit. They spoke in tongues. And when they went out and Peter preached and 3,000 were added to the church that day. And, and, and circle these words sometime in Acts chapter 2. It says, everyone was amazed and they marveled. First time I came into a setting like this, I was amazed and I marveled. And we hear that story over and over again. People are like, I never saw church like this. They marveled because they were uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. No blueprint. No methodology. They had a desire to be with one another. They had a desire for God's word. They had a hunger Acts 2 says they continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in fellowship, in communion. How they do it, I have no clue. No method. Prayer. How they pray, I have no idea. Signs and wonders were being done. And here's that word again, a sense of awe. People love being part of this community. Verse 46 in Acts 2 says they continue daily with one accord in the temple. They love large gatherings. They broke bread house to house. They loved getting together with small groups of people. They ate their food with Gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And again, it was the Lord adding to the church daily those who were being saved. It wasn't some how-to mechanism they had learned. The Lord was adding to the church. They were just being the church. And it was beautiful. And there was no blueprint. It was the expression of God in that day. And they had no idea what to do when they gathered. The reason why there's no blueprint is God is not trying to make the same model over and over and over again. Does everybody get that? That's what we do. We even do that in Calvary Chapel. We have distinctives. Yeah, you're a Calvary Chapel if you do these five things. You're a Baptist church. You do these five things. We're all in the models and methods. God's into a movement, an unstoppable force. The church was meant to be a unique expression of God in any local geographical area. So God takes a collection of people here, he mines out the gifts, and if we pray enough, our expression becomes unique. The church, designed by God, is to do three things. Give glory to God, build up the saints, and reach the lost. You take out any one of those components, you cease to do church. Take out building the saints. If you just want to reach the lost, everything gets watered down. If you just want to build up the saints and never reach the lost, you build a country club and everybody in fights. You need all three components. 
glorify God, build up the saints, reach the lost. God was more concerned with passion than programs, mission than method, and life change rather than order. He was looking for the geographical expression in any local area. Look at the screen. Uh, this is about only half the books I carried for this shoot. The Innovative Church, How God Builds a Church, Organic Church, Upside Down Church, Vertical Church, Deep Church, Simple Church, The Emotionally Healthy Church. That's only half of my books on the church, and there's probably a dozen I either gave away or threw out. You're probably thinking, Pastor Bob, why do you read all these books about the church? Because I'm incurable, number one. I'm a church junkie, right? I'm not looking for secrets. I'm not looking for methods. Let me read this book and see what we can do. You know what all these books really are? Great things God has done in local churches. You can grab a kernel of truth. You can't copy it. One of my favorite books is Jim Cimbala's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Story of Brooklyn Tabernacle. He takes over Brooklyn Tabernacle, 25 people there. He's discouraged. A woman comes up on a Tuesday and prays for him, and that starts a Tuesday night prayer thing that now has grown to like two to 3,000 people, and they've got this amazing church in Brooklyn. I had dinner with Jim Cimbala. You know what he told me? Bob, you've got to figure out your deal for yourself. We figured ours out, but I know this, you can't copy what we're doing. That's not a reproducible model. First of all, you need a wife who can't read music that started a choir that has won 10 Grammy Awards. Try that one out, all right? Just can't reproduce it. It's the expression of God in that area. There's no blueprint. You get on your knees, you, you, you pray, you do what you do, and God brings the expression now, if the church is that important, and if we have to build a church and there are new blueprints, is there anything to go by? And the answer is yes. First, Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. Paul knew Timothy's mother. His dad was Greek, probably not a believer. He, he, he was steeped in the scriptures from a young age. He was young. He's pastoring in Ephesus. Paul gets word he's struggling. Uh, there's problems with leadership, the role of women, law versus grace, all kinds of things that go on in any church. And uh, this is Paul's protege. He's mentored this kid. Timothy feels insecure. We know from Scripture he's timid, unsure of himself. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy saying, Timothy, you can make it. You can build a great church. There is no blueprint, Timothy. But let me encourage you in a few things. And that's what we're going to look at in this study. Skip down to verse 12. Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me... Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, that means violent. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. In other words, Paul's saying, I don't care what you believe. But this is something everybody should believe. And this is what it is. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. He didn't say I was chief, he said I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus might show in all long suffering a pattern of those who were going to believe on him for everlasting life. And he thinks back to his testimony and then he breaks into praise. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He just has this praise explosion. Timothy, if you want a blueprint, if you're looking for a method, if you want to know how God builds a church, the first thing he does is he looks for a man. And when I say a man, it can be a man or a woman. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro. Here's where people get it wrong. I talk to young church leaders, and they remind me of bakers. They think if I could just get the recipe, right? Right, I'll get the cool worship leader. I'll get the men's leader. You know, I'll get the children's person. I'll borrow this. I'll borrow that. I'll put it all together. I'll make this pie, and I'll have a church. It's not how you build a church. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro. God's looking for a man or a woman he can use. And if you read your Bible and you start with Abraham and you go to Moses and David and Paul and Peter, what you start to discover is that God doesn't look for committees. He doesn't look for groups. He's not looking for teams. He's looking for an individual. And then when he finds that individual, he surrounds them with a team and groups and committees. A.W. Tozier who everybody should read at one point in their Christian journey, said the true and safe leader is likely to be the one who has no desire to lead, but was forced into the position of leadership by the inward pressure of the spirit and the press of the external situation. Such were Moses, David, and the Old Testament prophets. He said, I think there was hardly a great Christian leader from Paul to the present day but who was drafted by the Holy Spirit for a task and commissioned by the Lord of the church to fill a position he had no passion or little heart for. I believe that it might be accepted as a fairly reliable rule of thumb that a man who is ambitious to lead is disqualified as a leader. The church of the firstborn is no place for the demagogue or the petty religious dictator. The true leader will have no wish to lord it over God's heritage, but will be humble, gentle, self-sacrificing, and altogether as ready to follow as to lead when the spirit makes it plain that a wiser and more gifted man than himself has appeared. It is undoubtedly true, as I have said so often, that ch church is languishing not for leaders, but for the right kind of leaders. For the wrong kind is worse than none at all. Better to stand still than to follow a blind man over a precipice. History will show that the church has prospered most when blessed with strong leaders and suffered the greatest decline when her leaders were weak and time-serving hirelings, doing it for a job. The sheep rarely go much farther than the shepherd. That is why unqualified democracy is not good for a church unless every voting member is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. To put the work of the church in the hands of the group is to exchange one leader for many, and the group is composed of carnal professors is to exchange one weak leader for a number of bad ones. One hundred blind men cannot see better than one. Everything rises and falls on leadership. God looks for a man, not a worker, not a man looking for a job. Timothy, hang in there in Ephesus. You can do this. You know why? God has called you. God put me into the ministry. Here's my credentials. I was violent. I was an insolent man. 
You know, in chapter one, he lists all these things that are contrary to sound doctrine. The profane, the murderers, the, the, the slayers of mothers and fathers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, all these vile things he names in chapter one. And then he says, I was the chief of sinners. Here's my qualification, Timothy. I'm a changed life. I get grace. I understand it. Not by theory. It's been experiential in my life. I know God changes lives. If you're looking for any kind of blueprint, this is it. Get one changed man, put him on fire, put him in a pulpit, and you'll start a brush fire. Because we are the men who have hung over hell. We've seen the fire. We've seen the power of God. If there's a book I give out more than any other, it's a book called Harvest by Chuck Smith. Story of Calvary Chapel. Subtitle is Gang Members, Drug Addicts, Mental Patients, Society's Rejects, Chuck Smith's Amazing Story of Calvary Chapel and the Unlikely Leaders God Called. One leader God called was Raul Reese. First preacher I ever heard on the radio, I didn't even know what Calvary Chapel was. The chapter in the book about Raul was called Fury to Freedom. Raul was in Vietnam. He was like Paul, he was violent, he was angry. Raul was sitting in his house in a chair with a shotgun. When his wife Sharon came home, he was going to kill her and himself. And he put TV on to kill time, and Chuck Smith came on. And Chuck was talking about grace. And he was talking about no one was far enough away from God's grace. And he talked about God's love and his mercy. And Raul began to break tears streaming down his cheeks. He became a believer. He was so fired up about getting saved uh, that in his local karate studio, after they would kind of work in karate, he started a Bible study that grew to over a 1,000. And 10 years later, was pastoring one of the largest churches in America. And if you ever heard Raul, you know, he's of Mexican descent. English is his second language. He speaks broken English. He gets all the grammar wrong. You know, like you know, that phrase in Matthew where some are Enochs for the kingdom of God, some are made eunuchs. He says Enochs. Like, he butchers the language terribly. And then the altar's filled at the end. Why? Because he knows grace. He knows something about life change. He knows the power of God and what it could do. Greg Laurie had five stepdads. Comes to Christ at 19. At 21, he would sit in Calvary Chapel offices. When all the pastors went to lunch, he would answer the phones. He's counseling people. He's thinking, oh my gosh, if these older people ever knew the guy that was counseling them had hair down to his knees, 21 years old, they would never believe it. People in Riverside said, oh, we want a Calvary Chapel there. No one of the pastors on staff wanted to go because you couldn't surf up in Riverside. It was inland. Greg said, I'll go. Becomes one of the largest churches in America. Mike McIntosh, burnt out on drugs. Chuck Smith said not every drug addict that came here made it. A lot of them were so far gone, they just never made it. He said, we thought Mike would be that way. Mike McIntosh gets saved, remarries his wife, goes to San Diego, one of the largest churches in America. What's amazing about the story is none of these men could have been in the ministry if they had to go the traditional route. Now, there's nothing wrong with the traditional route. I'm just saying none of them could have been in the ministry. But the eyes of the Lord went to and fro, and God said, this guy and that guy. And just like Paul, they understood the transformation and that they were the chief of sinners. And if God could do it in them, he can do it in others.
They understood grace and its amazing power. And it's not just Calvary Chapel. I was at a Catalyst conference this week, took some of our younger staff. Craig Rochelle was there. Craig said that they were hiring for a position. He's a very large church in Oklahoma. He said, he said the one candidate was educated, went to the right schools, could do the job. The second guy was kind of an athlete, didn't have all the right credentials. We're interviewing the second guy, and we finally said, look, why do you want this job? And the guy said, because I sat in the fifth row for three months, and I gave my heart to Christ, and I was an addict, and I was far from God, and I won't rest, and I won't sleep night and day until people like me are getting saved and baptized and filling the pews of this church. And they're like, calm down, you got the job, don't worry about it. You got it, that's what we're looking for. Again, I'm not putting down education. I'm not putting down people with the right credentials. I'm just saying there's something about passion. There's something about leadership. There's something about calling. There's something about understanding pain. Martin Luther said, if we ever lost this principle of grace and justification and God being able to change people. He said, this doctrine is head and cornerstone. It is above, it begets, it nourishes and defends the church of God. He said, without it, the church of God could not exist for one hour. And that's why when you drive around the country, you pass a lot of little churches, right? Nothing against little churches. Probably maybe they're doing great things. But I wonder if they thought about grace. I wonder if, if they believe they're in a revolution, a movement. I wonder if they think they're an unstoppable force. Church can't last for an hour. This would be ridiculous to think, if God's not changing people, we should do this. John Calvin said, wherever the kingdom of God, this is taken away. The glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Was buried and raised the third day, according to the Scriptures. The whole Old Testament moving us to this idea that a suffering servant, a king, would die on a cross. That would bring hope to the world. This was God's plan because God loves people. Now, last week I talked about God, nation, and history. Pre-election. You can download it. We have CDs out there. Talked about how no matter what happened in the election, Wednesday, I would be about my father's business. So what happens Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Protests, riots in the streets. Does everybody understand that's the crew we're trying to reach? Remember I said the harvest was plentiful? If you turned on your TV and you looked at those rides and said, oh, those people should have voted, or they don't understand the Electoral College, or this and that, what you need to understand is these are young people who are looking for a cause, a dream, a revolution. They're just bound up in the wrong thing. See, it's easy to read Chuck Smith's story and say, oh, yeah, Chuck reached the hippies. Isn't that great? Hippies smelled. I remember hippies. They smelled... They didn't go to work. They were weird. You didn't want to be around them. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, let's go get the hippies, until you see the protests. You don't want anything to do with those people. That's the harvest. 
That's the heart of God, not the election. People. We need churches in cities. That's where these people live. We need vibrant churches. We need to break blueprints and methods. We need to remember the mission. We need to have a compelling reason for them to come. The compelling reason is God loves them, and he loves them unconditionally. That he can change them and give them peace. You know, I'm kind of tired of all the analysis. You know, in America, I mean, gosh, even in the church, we have all this analysis. Oh, I know what happened. America went down when we stopped praying in schools. Really? Maybe America went down when we stopped praying in churches. Remember what the Tocqueville said last week? That the churches were on fire when he came to America? Maybe when we got program-driven and all worried about, you know, having great things for our kids and, and all that, maybe that's when the decline happened. Church is an unstoppable, unmovable force. Timothy said, Paul said to Timothy, I can't give you a blueprint, Timothy, but I'll give you this. It's worthy of all acceptance. And if you believe this to your toes, you'll have success. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the prototype. This is it. This is the whole mission. I was the chief sinner, and he saved me. And with that in my back pocket, I could sit at Mars Hill in Athens and debate the intelligentsia. I could stand in a river and talk to a businesswoman, a woman filled with demons, a Philippian jailer. This gospel is reproducible, Timothy, everywhere it goes because God's building his church. He's adding to the church daily who should be saved. It's the power of God, not of us. We're the broken vessels he's using. We're imperfect. But if you get up every day and understand that God's heart beats for lost people, Timothy, you can do this job. Isn't that what we all want to see? Isn't that what we all want to see? I mean, if God dumped in a hundred brand new minute Christians in this church, wouldn't that be the greatest thing we could ever see? We so, we'd be so busy mentoring them and teaching them and excited. Church has been here for 2,000 years. If Jesus tires, it'll be here 2,000 more years. Methods will change. Models will change. Mission is the same. Go into all the world. Baptize them. Tell them about my love. You know, I told you about my little routine on Sunday morning. And, um, you know, sometimes when I pray, I say, God... Um, Maybe you struggle with this. I say, God, sometimes I don't know your voice from the devil's voice. It's from my voice. I mean, you said I would hear your voice. You're the great shepherd. And uh, there's days where I'm like, God, maybe you can get another guy. I'm just being honest. God, maybe there's another guy cut out for this. Maybe there's another guy who lives a holier life, has more passion, gets it, has better, I, I don't know. And then I just wade through all that and I think, well, God's not condemning, God's uplifting. And then I get recharged by thinking, wait a second. There was a day where I met Jesus Christ. 
and it was palpable. And my life changed on a dime, and I've been changed ever since. And there's something I know, and it's tangible, that if God did it for me, he can do it for others. And that's why I show up every Sunday. Because this thing we're doing is mystical. Uh, it's foolish. I don't get it all. I don't know how to do it all. I tell married couples when they stand before me, I say, look, you know, if 20 years from now, you have what you have right now, your love for one another, I'll be pleased. I'm not worried about the kids, cars, all those things. If, if, if you have what you have right now, just your love for one another, you'll be okay. 35 years later, I could say no one's bought me. No one owes, owns me. You know, I, I'm not serving a denomination. I'm a man under authority. But I still had that love for God when I met him on the first day. I still believe he saves I still believe he loves. I still believe the church is the hope of the world. I think when it's working right, it's the best place to be. I think it's the greatest hour of the week. I think when we meet large and small and whatever we do, it's beautiful. Because even though we're blemished and wrinkled and frail and hypocritical, we are his bride. Yeah, we are his bride. This is plan A. And we're going to keep doing it, and we're going to keep believing, and God's going to do great things.